Well, good morning, Applewood family. Those of you who are guests with us this morning, it's great to have you worshiping with us. Hey, just a quick family note. Some of you um, may have heard that Paul Veer's mother passed away last Sunday. And uh, I spoke with Paul yesterday, and he is doing well. Large family, lots of cousins and aunts and uncles, and they've all gathered in uh, Wisconsin to, to celebrate mom's life. But it just seemed like it would be good for us to join them in that and uh, pray together. So let me pray and uh, lead us this morning on their behalf. Father, you who are the giver and sustainer and the taker of life, we acknowledge that this morning. And our hearts are with Paul and Karen and the girls and extended family as they uh, both grieve and celebrate the loss of of mom and mother-in-law and grandmother. Father, we are grateful that Paul's mom knew you and, and walked with you many, many days on this earth. And we thank you. Even though it was a surprise to the family, they thank you and they celebrate her life. They are grateful for your grace that began a good work in her years and years and years ago. We thank you for the lives that she touched for your glory. We thank you for the example that she was of your transforming grace. And so we hold up Paul and the family and ask that in the midst of the tears, there will be lots of laughter, that there will be memories that... uh, that caused them to rejoice in your goodness and your grace toward this woman whom they all loved. May they know your presence. May they know your peace. And may they look forward even more perhaps than they already do to the day when they will be together again. Uh, We think of that scene in Revelation where the elders and those around the throne cry, Worthy, worthy are you. O Lord, worthy is the Lamb. Glory to God. One more voice has joined that choir. And we give you praise for that. And thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, I think it's been a while since I have read a story that falls into that favorite category of mine. Truth is stranger than fiction. You got to hear this one. I read a fascinating article this week. It's about a subculture of people. They're called decibel drag racers. Have you ever heard this phrase? They are people whose prized possessions are their car stereos. But these drag racers don't race. What they do is they get together and they crank their stereo systems to just unbelievably high levels, and the winner is the one who can play the stereo before it explodes at the loudest possible decibel. This is true. Now, here's what's fascinating, is most of the cars, according to this article that I read, they, uh, they're not even drivable. 
And the reason is because of all the modifications made to them to accommodate the monster stereo systems that go into these cars. One competition is described in this article where there are about 50 cars. They gather in a cul-de-sac. Imagine living in that neighborhood. They gather in a cul-de-sac where one competitor has removed the stereo from his truck and put it on a tripod outside the driver's door. And the reason that he's done that is because he took all of the seats out of the truck in order to make room for the 40,000 watts of amplifiers and speakers, whom this writer says are so powerful they create their own gusts of wind. Windshields in these cars usually only make it through two or three competitions before they crack. Now, the writer of the article comments on one competitor who, he says, completely missed the irony that there is no longer any room for himself in his car. We need more batteries, laments the competitor, but that's all the room we have. The writer concludes with these words. To anyone outside of this extreme audio sport world, irony is perhaps a generous word to describe the phenomenon. You see, everybody wants to be the king of a hill, but the number of aspiring kings always dwarfs the number of available hills, so in this country, we build more hills. I loved it. Can you imagine? I've got the biggest, baddest stereo system around. I read an article like that, and I think, there's something wrong with these people. And then I realize, no, there really isn't. They're just being human. They're being like me. And they're being like you. Because we all want to build our own hills and be king of something. King of something. Yeah. Now, their hill is not my hill. But I have my hills. You have your hills. There is something in us as humans that desires to be something. There is a desire for for greatness of some kind, to to be the best at something. And so we build a hill of our choosing and then we coronate ourselves as king in order to leave our mark, to to be known, to be recognized by others, to, to be remembered for something when we die, right? Can you relate to this? None of you ever does that, right? All right, now you may laugh at this, But these grandchildren that have been flooding into Shreese's in my life of late, (laughs) gosh, they are such a blessing. But I have to tell you, they create an enormous struggle inside of me. As you might expect, I really want to be around for these kids as long as I can. But but I know that I'm not going to be around forever. None of us is. And so I want to do things for which I will be remembered by them. I want to make my mark on these kids. Now, that's not necessarily a problem, but it leads to one. I want them to think that I am a fantastic grandfather. I want them to miss me when I am not around. I want them to be with me more than they want to be with their own parents. (laughs) I want, to th- I want them to think of me. I want them to want me. I want them to think I am the greatest show on earth. Would you agree that's a problem? Yes, 
Can you relate? Is there something in your life that has a grip on your heart? Something for which you want to be known? Something perfectly legitimate? Want to be known as a great dad, a great mom, great husband, great wife, a great friend, great business person, financially savvy, great at that kind of thing, great professional, great pastor, great this or that, you fill in the blank. Now, don't hear me saying that I think it's wrong to strive to be, to be good, to be even great at something that is important to us. But what I am saying is that I think we need to be very honest from the get-go about the motive. Why do we want it? Who is it for, really? And we must realize that, that there is enormous potential for evil that comes with a personal sense of greatness and accomplishment. Especially when those things are affirmed by others. The problem is if if those who are important to us think that we are great, we may start to believe it. Denzel Washington tells a wonderful story about a conversation he once had with his mom. He says, when I was young and started really making it as an actor, I stopped by her house one day. As we were talking, I asked her, so mama, did you think that this was ever going to happen, that that I'd make it big and I'd be able to take care of everybody and to do this and do that? His mama replied, oh, you did it all by yourself? I'll tell you what you can do by yourself. Go outside, get a sponge and a bucket and clean the windows in my house. You can do that by yourself, Mr. Superstar. And then she said, boy, you got to stop it right there. Stop it right now. If you only knew how many people have been praying for you. Washington says he, he reflected on that conversation. And he said, oh my how many prayer groups she must have put together, how many prayers she must have prayed, and how many times she splashed me with holy water to save my sorry behind. (laughs) You know, we even need to be cautious about wanting to do great things for God. We need to ask ourselves who that is about, really. You see, because... With, with greatness, greatness as we perceive it, greatness as is affirmed perhaps by others and in our culture, greatness comes with great temptation to think of ourselves in ways that are, oh, so potentially dangerous. To think of ourselves as, as king of the hill, that I've arrived, I've made it, Look what I've done. Really? What I have done? You know, James writes in his letter that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. And he reminds his readers that the spirit who lives in God's people is jealous for God to receive glory and praise through their lives. 
And then he quotes from Proverbs 3. He writes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In Matthew, Jesus, in in one of those kingdom value statements, says, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. There's no greater reminder of this than the table that is set for us this morning. According to Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, the creator of the universe, the one who holds it all together, became human. He served sinful people. And he died for them. And as a result, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above all names, the the name of the Savior and Redeemer, the name before which, Paul says, all people will someday bow down. Some will bow in worship, some will bow in fear, but all will bow before the name of that one. So in preparation for communion this morning, I always feel like communion is is the highlight of our Sunday when we celebrate it. Let's, Let's spend a few minutes together with our Old Testament character for this morning as we continue our series through looking at the lives of people that are part of God's story, the biblical story. What can we learn? What can we take away? What do we learn about ourselves? What do we learn about God? That's, that's what we've been exploring. So before we get to our text, let me, uh, let me ask you a question. When you think of David in the Old Testament, King David, what is the first thing that comes to mind about David. Turn to someone near you and have this conversation with them. What do you think about David? What comes to mind? All right. Let's, uh, let's share the wealth here. What did you come up with? What would your neighbor say? And then they can tell on you. Yo, yo. <laughs> okay. Yo, yo. All right. What else? Murderer, adulterer. Yeah. Yeah. Danced unashamedly before the Lord. Yeah. What else do you think about David? That was Daniel. Last of the litter, Psalms. And he played the harp. Of course. He had to be a good person. He played the harp, right? <laughs> a giant killer. I think, personally, the greatest events of David's life, can I say it this way, came when he wasn't great. The greatest defense of his life came when he wasn't great. You know, you, you, you look at his life after he became the king, after he became 
great in the eyes of the people. And, and remember, if people began to think we're great, we might start to believe them. And I think that that became an enormous struggle in David's life. And as we know, you know, he started out, he wasn't pursuing kingship. But the greater he became, greater were the temptations to think of himself as great and the problems that came as a result of that conflict. Well, our text this morning is found in 1 Samuel. Chapter 16, God, let's give you a quick context. God has has rejected Saul as the king of Israel. Saul was was prideful and he was unwilling to obey God. Um, And so God told Saul through his mouthpiece, his prophet Samuel, that although you were once small in your own eyes, read humble. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become king? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. But because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So, let's stand and read this story together. Here we go. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. 
He was glowing with health, had a fine appearance, handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. We got it. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Oh, what a story. Isn't that just a a wonderful scene? You talk about humble beginnings. You know, David was not on anyone's radar screen except God's. Truth be told, Jesse wasn't on anybody's radar screen. Bethlehem wasn't really on anybody's radar screen. But God had a plan. Now, I always want to be careful and not read too much into a story. Uh, But what about the answer that David's father gave to Samuel's question? Think about it for just a moment. Are these all the sons you have? And Jesse said, there is still the youngest, but he is tending the sheep. Just speak out. What do you hear in those words? There is still the youngest, but he is tending the sheep. What do you hear? He gets the dirty job. He wouldn't have been considered anyway. Yeah. He's not important. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. David was not king material. Even Samuel was caught up in the spirit of the world. Surely the king would be someone who is, well, kingly, right? But, but God reminded him that is not how he views people. God looks at the heart. There are two lessons that I want us to take away from this story this morning as we prepare for communion. And that is the first lesson. And of course, we know that. God is interested in our hearts. What does our heart long for? And I should warn you that if we're going to reflect honestly on these questions, it's going to require us finding the time to do that. Reflection. Thinking about what we've heard from God's word and then finding that time and that place to to process that with him who has given his word to us. God, what is there here for me? God is interested in our hearts. What does our heart long for? Is our heart, according to James, using James' word, is our heart a friend of the world or a friend of God? Do we want to be known or do we want to know God? Do we want to be the king of some hill? Or do we want God to be 
the king of our heart who rules over all the hills in our lives. A couple of chapters prior to this in 1 Samuel 13, Samuel told Saul after he had blatantly disobeyed the Lord that that his kingdom would not endure and that the Lord had already sought out a man after his own heart. And then in Acts chapter 16, Paul gives us some additional commentary. He's recounting the story to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch, and he notes that David was a man after God's own heart and that he did everything that God wanted him to. Did he? And he did other stuff too. (laughs) P.S. Paul gives us a clue there that when God looks at the human heart, he is looking for someone who will do all that he calls them to do. Is our heart, your heart, is my heart, is our heart as a congregation, <clears throat> is, it, is it captured for God? <coughs> to use the words of, of Paul in Colossians, have we, have, we, have we sought to take every thought in our lives obedient and make it obedient to Christ? Every thought captive so that it's obedient to Christ. God is looking for someone who will do all that he calls them to do. Now, <clears throat> did David do that? Well, he certainly did a lot that God didn't call him to do. He had some huge failures after he became king. But David was also quick to repent and seek the Lord's forgiveness. When you compare David and Saul, those are two huge differences. David's heart was repentant. Oh, God, I screwed up again. Saul never got there. Lesson number one, God is interested in our hearts. He is interested in our humility. And I think he is interested in in growing that quality of humility in us. And so we need to ask those questions. Who does my heart belong to? Whose who's fame, whose attention am I seeking in this life? Whose life am I living? Am I living my own life and I sprinkle a little bit of God and church activity into that? Or am I giving attention to the life that God has called me to live in Christ. And when I fail, when you, when we fail, and we will, is there a humility in us that seeks Him and seeks His forgiveness? That, I think, is what it means to be a person, a man or a woman, who is after God's own heart. Do I want to be the greatest 
grandfather in the world because that's what I want my grandkids to think? Because that's important to me? Or do I want to be a grandfather who loves my grandkids in a way that demonstrates for them a life and a heart that has been surrendered to God. Commitment to living the life that God has called me to live in Christ. God is interested in our hearts. Interested in growing that quality of humility in us. Lesson number two. Humility before God is learned in the sheep fields. David was a shepherd who became a king years and years after he was anointed. And it was before he became the king that he was described as a man after God's own heart. Now, this is just purely speculation on my part, so you need to know that. But I tend to think that humility had its beginning in David's life as he kept the family sheep. As he did the lowly task as he gave himself to tending those dumb, stinking animals day in and day out, David learned humility. See, nobody wanted to tend sheep in that culture. It was the lowest on the ladder of jobs. But David was stuck with it by virtue of his place in the family. He tended the sheep. And what happened in those fields? I think he learned to seek God. He learned to trust God. He learned to talk with God. He learned to walk humbly with God because it's in the very next chapter in 1 Samuel that David does, I think, one of the greatest things in his life. Slays the giant. Slays the giant. And he did that while he was still a shepherd. I mean, you know the story. It's a wonderfully humorous story. Saul wants to put his armor on him, and David says, I can't wear this stuff. It's too heavy. And, and when he hears the boasting challenge of Goliath, do you remember what he says? Oh, let me fight him. I've been chosen by God for greatness. I'm chosen to be the next king. Sorry, Saul. I guess you haven't been told that yet. Does that giant not know who I am? Let me set him straight. No, here's what David says. He asks the question, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who does this brute think he is? And then when Saul questioned his credentials... What did David do? He referred to his life in the fields as a shepherd. Times in protecting the sheep when he had killed both a lion 
and a bear. David's life as a shepherd prepared him to do great things of God's choosing in his life. Because his life as a shepherd presented him with difficulties and challenges that taught him much about the faithfulness of God. And so when, when he looked at Goliath, it was his knowledge of God, I think, his confidence in God that prompted him to do what he did for God. You remember his brothers were a little bit put out that David thought he could do this. And I imagine that there were a whole lot of soldiers around there that thought, this is nuts. Are you kidding? And the Philistines, of course, probably had a good laugh as this skinny little shepherd boy came walking down the hill looking for rocks in the creek. David didn't set out to do great things for God. David set out to live for God's glory. And as a result of that desire, God used him to do a great thing. God loves humility. And he uses humble people. Do we long to be used by him? Are we willing to be used by him where we are, even if it doesn't seem all that significant, all that important, all that great in the eyes of others or perhaps even in our own eyes? I'm convinced that it's in those places that we will find more of God because there's less of us. We see God more clearly because we are able to see ourselves for who we are, dependent, needy, taking our every breath and every heartbeat from the one who made us for himself. God loves humility. I read the most incredible quote earlier this week. If you get Christianity Today, perhaps you've seen it. Well, I'm not even sure that it's come out yet, but it was their online version. There's an interview there with Johnny Erickson Tata. You know that name. <clears throat> the title of the, uh, the, the article or the interview is, After 50 Years in a Wheelchair, I Still Walk with Jesus. She says this, there really are more important things in life than walking. There are more important things in life than having the use of your hands. And that is having a heart that's free of the grip of sin and pride and self-centeredness. I'm not saying I've arrived. I've got a long way to go but I'm on my way. And that's a very good feeling. My brothers and sisters, may God remind us of David's greatness as a shepherd doing the mundane and the things in life that 
others really didn't want to do. And may we be reminded of the battles that he faced, the temptations that confronted him when suddenly he became great in the eyes of his people and perhaps in his own eyes. I don't think it's coincidental that Paul in Philippians exhorts the believers of Philippi and exhorts the believers of Applewood to think about themselves in the same way that Jesus thought about himself. And he talks about the one who was with God from the beginning, humbling himself, coming to earth, taking on the form of a human being, wrapping himself in our frail flesh, serving throughout his life lost and broken, rebellious people, and ultimately dying a criminal's death for That is humility beyond anything that I can get my mind around. But that is God's call to us. Christ is our example.